have a Bible, go ahead and open it there. Uh, we will spend some time kind of unpacking a, a majority, actually, of chapter 3 together. But before we do, I just want to take a moment to reflect on the gospel of Mark as a whole, right? Because the gospel of Mark was written for a purpose. It's not just some historical book that tells the story of a person. Mark wrote the story of Jesus. He wrote it down for a reason, for a purpose. To use a line from uh, J.R.R. Token, I've shared this line before, but Mark records Jesus' message that God was making everything sad come untrue. God was taking what was sad and broken about this world and making it come untrue. Now, that God was undoing the grip of, uh, uh, and power of sin and darkness on this world hopefully doesn't come as a, as a shock to you. Or, or maybe at least if we were to step back from it to say that, that there is a grip of power and darkness and evil on this world and in this world, hopefully that doesn't come as a shock to you, that, that this world is not the way that it should be. You know, we, we look in the news and, and the things we read, we, we, we see murder and, and violence. It should not be. Kidnapping, terrorism should not be. Bombings, airstrikes should not be. But so shouldn't there be sickness. There, there shouldn't be loneliness. There shouldn't be insecurities. There shouldn't be lying and, and cheating and shame and, and breaking of trust and breaking hearts. I mean, do I have to go on with a further list to, to prove to us, to convince us that this world is not the way that it should be? See, the gospel of Mark was written so that we would be able to see and know that God was making everything sad and broken about our world come untrue through the life of his son, Jesus. A son that he had sent to be a new king over a new kingdom, And this good news is the good news that each and every one of us in this room and listening online and around the world are invited to join him in, in this new kingdom. God is about making everything sad come untrue. Now, this is probably one of the the greatest treasures that we could be offered. It's way better than any door prize that you might get in going to one of Oprah's shows, you know, where she says, you get a new car, you get, no, this is even better. You get to enter the kingdom of God, and you get to enter the kingdom of God, and you get to enter the kingdom of God. Everyone here gets to enter the kingdom of God. No one goes home empty-handed, right? What a gift that is. That's the good news. That's the message of the gospel of Mark. Not only that there is a new kingdom, but that all of us, are invited to enter into this new kingdom. All you have to do is take Jesus at his word. That's all you have to do. Take Jesus at his word. But again, this is easier said than done because we don't necessarily know who Jesus is. We've, we've heard about who Jesus is. We've heard other people tell us who Jesus is, but we don't know necessarily who Jesus is. Or maybe we don't know all the things that he said about himself. And maybe even more specifically, we aren't sure we believe all the things that Jesus says about himself. See, many of the people in the Gospel of Mark followed after Jesus for the things he did. They saw him heal the sick or cast out demons or, or heal the leper. And they think, man, that's amazing. 
I, I've, got, I've got this, this issue with my arm. I, I, I got to go see Jesus. Or I want to see that for myself. So all these people start following after Jesus because they're amazed at the things that he can do. But they didn't really know him for who he said he was. Eventually, these people would have to decide for themselves whether following Jesus was something they were willing to do because they believed that Jesus was who he said he was. Because just relying on the things that Jesus did for them was not going to be enough. And so church, that's a question that each of us have to think about and decide for ourselves as well. Being a Christian is not just belonging to a local church that, that talks about the Bible. It's coming to that point where you can say in your own heart, I have considered the claims that Jesus made about himself, and I would say, amen, they're true. Finally, here in Jesus, we have God's king, his chosen king. And so you have to decide, do, you, do we believe in Jesus and follow him because we, we think he's, he's a spiritual first aid kit and can fix the problems that come up in my life from time to time? Or, or do, we, do we believe in Jesus? Maybe this is it. Maybe we believe in Jesus because we're afraid that if we say out loud that we're not sure we do, something really bad's going to happen to us, right? We're afraid of, of what could happen to us if we don't believe in Jesus. Or do we really believe in Jesus because we've taken him at his word and that we believe Jesus is who he says he is. What do you believe about Jesus? How, how are we to respond to the claims that he, that he makes to be the, the son of God who has come to be our savior and our king? What do you make of that? There's a saying that was made popular by C.S. Lewis, but what I learned this week when I was studying was he was not the first one to say this, but he certainly made it popular. He, he, he has this, this saying in, in one of his books, Mere Christianity, in, in, um, in which he says that when a person is faced with the claims of Jesus, there are really only two options. He says, a, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher, right? So think about that for a minute. If you evaluate the things that Jesus actually said about himself, there's no room for him to be considered just a great moral teacher who said some kind, nice things. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He didn't intend to. Right? Lunatic, demon-possessed, or son of God. Those are the only options we have in deciding who Jesus is. And you know what? We have to decide for ourselves what we think, what we believe. And our text today invites us to do that, to do just that. So again, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Mark chapter 3. If you grab the Bible in the seat back in front of you, it's on page 838. And I'm going I'm to actually pick up about two-thirds of the way through the chapter in, in verse 20. Why don't you follow along as I read the scripture for us. 
Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him, and a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, this is the very word of God breathed out. And we thank you for that, that you, you are a God who desires to reveal yourself to us. And so, Lord, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to comprehend, and hearts of courage to embrace the truth that you have declared about yourself this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, I, I know this will come as no surprise to you all, but I need to talk to you all about sandwiches for a moment. I love to talk about food, that's, that's a foregone conclusion, but, but the surprise about this morning is that this is not going to be one of those sandwiches that you expect me to talk about. See, the, 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 the idea of sandwiching is a literary technique that Mark uses in the gospel to tell a story. It, it, it's a sort of technique where he begins a story, then kind of steps away from that for a minute and inserts another story before he comes back and wraps up his sandwich with the ending of the first story that he started with. Two very different stories combined into one that help us interpret and understand one another and actually get an idea of what, what is actually being communicated to us through the life of Jesus here in the Gospel of Mark. In other words, the narrative around Jesus' family and the crowds and the scribes from Jerusalem all have a similar meaning. And when we sandwich them together, when we, when we put them together as Mark has, we're better able to understand them all. So let me ask you a question. When you go about starting to make a sandwich, what do you do? You start by putting that first piece of bread on the plate, right? That, that first layer. We're going to start with that. And that's where Mark starts us out in verses 20 and 21 in Mark chapter 3. He tells us that, that Jesus and his followers go back to his home and a great crowd follows him, right? And now, this is not a small crowd either, by the way. He records uh, earlier in the chapter that, that this crowd was coming from as far away as 73 miles down in Jerusalem to come and see Jesus and hear what's going on, hear what he's doing and see what he's doing, 
right? So this is not some small neighborhood gathering. This is a large crowd that's gathered in, this, in his home, and, and, and so much so that, that they don't even have the, the chance to, to eat. We can assume that, that, uh, it, that this issue of not being able to eat isn't because Jesus couldn't feed them, because we know from other stories in the gospel, those moments where Jesus miraculously is, miraculously is able to eat a feed, not eat. <laughs> Children, Jesus doesn't eat 5,000 people. He feeds 5,000 people. But, but we know that he's able to do that, right? We know that he can do that because he's done it elsewhere. What we probably can assume is that there's so much things, so much ministry going on that Jesus and his disciples don't have a moment's breath to, to stop and, and, and eat. But what I want us to pay attention to is not so much what Jesus is doing, but how people respond to Jesus, Mark tells us that when his family heard what was happening, when they heard that this great crowd had followed Jesus and gathered in his home, so much so that he couldn't even eat, they went out to seize him, saying he's, he's out of his mind. They, they hear about what's been happening. They hear about uh, what Jesus' ministry consists of. They hear about this great crowd following him, and they go, oh, man, he's crazy. We got to go, go rescue him. We got to go save him from himself, Right? Some, some of your translations will read that he has lost his senses or, or, or that he is beside himself. Now, regardless of what translation your Bible has, none of these are very flattering accounts of what Jesus' family thinks of Jesus. N- none of them like, kind of communicate that message that they're right there for Jesus. They're, they're, they're in his corner. They say, yeah, keep going, Jesus. Keep doing what you're doing, Right? They're, they're not on board with, with Jesus' ministry. Now, it's, it's safe to say that Jesus' family didn't, again, at least at this point in the story of Jesus, believe that Jesus was who he says he was and that he was doing what he was supposed to be doing. See, Jesus' family, they were at home, right? They weren't, they weren't following Jesus exploring the, 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 the miracles he was doing, watching him cleanse lepers, watching him cast out demons, hearing his preaching and teaching. They were at home. They, they, they were, it was like they were waiting for the milkman to deliver the goat milk. They, they, they had deliberately chosen not to go where Jesus was, but to stay at home. And since they've rejected his ministry, they rejected what he was doing. And it, 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 it hits this boiling point. He's out of his mind right? And so in verse 21, Mark tells us they, they leave their home and they set off on a mission. They, they set off with a purpose to go and get Jesus and, and then to take him by force, whether he wants to go with them or not. Mark uses this Greek word here, kriteo, which means not to just take by hand, but to seize, to, to subdue, to, to restrain, almost like, you, you know, like when when, when they put someone in a straight jacket, it's to restrain them, right? I'm not saying they were going to put Jesus in a straight jacket, but they had a purpose to go and restrain Jesus and to take him away. It was not just this gentle taking of, of Jesus' hands and, hey, Jesus, come with us for a minute, right? Now, these, these aren't the plans of people who take Jesus at his word and trust him, are they? But, but here is where Mark puts Jesus' family story on hold, 
actually, it's not on hold because they leave their house and Mark just steps away. So they're, they're traveling now, right? Jesus' family is traveling to Jesus' house. But while they're doing that, we're told the next part of the sandwich story. In verses 22 and 30, the, the middle part of the story, the story about the, the part about the scribes is told. Look at what we read in verse 22 to 27. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he's possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. This, this is that middle portion of our sandwich, right? In fact, I'm gonna, I'm gonna kind of I'm gonna reveal my hand a little bit. Don't picture a sandwich where you got the bottom bread and then like the nice thick meaty part and then the top bread. I, I actually, as we study through this together, I want you to picture an open-faced steak sandwich, right? I want you to think of the bottom bread now we're talking about the steak, right? And you're going to think, oh, the steak, that's the good part. Hold on, because it's not the best part. But this, this story of the scribes is that middle portion. It's that, that, the meaty part of the text. And, 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 and what we're told is the scribes have this immediate reaction to Jesus, this immediately hostile reaction to Jesus. They're not local scribes. They've, they've journeyed the 73 miles from Jerusalem to, to where Jesus is, and, and, and they're on a mission. Like, they're not, like, here on an exploratory mission to figure out who this Jesus is. What are the first things out of their, mind, out of their mouths? He's possessed by Beelzebul. He's possessed by Satan, right? They're, they're immediately hostile toward Jesus. Why? Jesus taught with authority, right? The, 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 the gospel of Mark tells us that he, he taught with authority. He healed the sick. He, he cleansed the unclean. He casts out demons. And these are all the things that none of the Pharisees or scribes could do. It set Jesus apart as one with authority, unlike or over the Pharisees and the scribes. And so his very life and ministry was a threat to their way of being, was a threat to their religion that they lived by and that they believed in and they were dedicated to and they're zealous for. And the only thing they could think to do or at least the, the, the thing they decide to do is to turn the perception of the crowd against Jesus, saying you're possessed by demons, you're possessed by Satan. And not only do they accuse Jesus of being possessed by and controlled by Satan, they, they, they claim that the source of Jesus' power is Satan as well. This will come in in a minute. But what I want you to notice here is the scribes don't argue about whether or not Jesus can do these things right? They're not saying Jesus can't really cast out demons. Jesus can't really clean, uh, cleanse the, those who are unclean. He can't really forgive sins. They, they, don't, they don't debate that with Jesus. What do they do? They try to attribute Jesus's power to Satan rather than to God. Listen, listen to how they challenge his, his source of, of, I'm sorry, not listen to how, they, they challenge his source of authority and, and power, which we can look at, we hear 
told in chapter one of Mark. Listen to how, how we read of Jesus' power and authority revealed in chapter one, verses 27 to 28. And they were all amazed. The crowd was all amazed. So they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And at once his fame spread throughout ev- everywhere, throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. The, the, the scribes see Jesus' fame and popularity. They see those in the crowd who recognize Jesus' authority and it scares them. It, 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 it makes them realize that their, their own power, their own authority is in question now. And the only way they can think to do that is to try not to question whether or not Jesus can do these things, but to muddy the water around what is the power and the source at work in Jesus' life and ministry. They can't refute what Jesus has done, so they try to hurt his popularity with the people by, by, by raising doubt as to where this power and this authority comes from. But here's the thing. This is where Jesus' response draws out a pretty big error in logic, right? Because Jesus goes on to tell them this parable about the, the, this kingdom, that, uh, Satan's kingdom, and the house being divided, and all these things, and, and it, it draws out this big error that they have in logic. How, how can Satan cast out Satan? If, if Satan's kingdom is one of power and Satan's all about power, why is he destroying his power, right? Why, why is Satan tearing down his own kingdom and destroying it? In, in other words, Jesus casting out demons doesn't show that he's controlled by Satan, it shows the collapse of Satan's rule in the face of the incoming kingdom of God. He tells the scribes that a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. And, and what he's saying is that this isn't some sort of civil war within Satan's kingdom, right? This is not Satan attacking Satan. This is actually two rival kingdoms in conflict. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. It's the same thing with the strong man, right? Jesus' power over demons proves that, that, he's, that he's already subdued that strong man, that he's already bound Satan up in such a way that, that Jesus can cast those demons out, that he could plunder the house of Satan, that, that he could plunder Satan's house and tear it down while he's ushering in God's kingdom. Time and time again in our, in our passage, Mark uses language, or Jesus actually in his parables uses language about, uh, about Satan trying to rise up, but, but then being squashed down, right? In, in the end, coming, he, he's not rising up, he's coming to an end. And all of this, as Jesus', as Jesus earthly ministry unfolds, is, is that revelation that Satan's kingdom is at an end and is being torn down. The walls are being torn down. And the kingdom of God is coming in. But then Jesus leaves the scribes with some parting words that I think as we traditionally read this passage gives us all pause. Let's read again what he says in verse 28 to 30. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. 
So I think many people have read these verses and, and, and worried that maybe they have committed that unforgivable sin. I, I thought God forgave sins. I, I didn't know that there was a sin that God didn't forgive, right? We, we kind of wrestle that. We get scared. We, we fear, am I, am I unforgivable? That, that, that maybe have I somehow blasphemed the Holy Spirit? Now, there, there's no chance that God could forgive me, right? But I, I'd like us to look a little closer at these verses to understand what Jesus is actually saying to the scribes. Merriam-Webster's dictionary defines blasphemy as the act of insulting or showing contempt or irreverence to God, right? In fact, I think we're all guilty of that. All of us are guilty of that kind of blasphemy against God. All of us have treated him irreverently, that was one of those words that almost came out funny. Irreverently, right? Carelessly, without concern. All of us are guilty of that. And again, in our passage, Jesus says that all sins will be forgiven the children of men and whatever blasphemies they, blasphemies they utter. But there's something unique here in this passage. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. So, really, what is this idea of blasphemy that, that Jesus is talking about? I find John's use of it in his gospel in John chapter 10, verse 33, helpful. There, there we read Jesus say, it is, or the Jews say to Jesus, it is not for good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Now, the... the the Jewish law said that if you were guilty of blasphemy, the penalty is death. And, and here in John 10, the Jews didn't believe that Jesus was the Son of God. And, and that they didn't believe that he was sent from heaven. And, and, and so they accused him of being merely a man. And if they were right, and if he was truly just merely a man, then they wouldn't be wrong with their accusation of blasphemy. Their, their accusation of blasphemy would be true. But Jesus is not merely a man. And so ironically, they were in fact the ones who were blaspheming because they refused to acknowledge that God was standing face to face with them in the person of Jesus. In other words, our failure to acknowledge God, our failure to give credit to the fact that that God is present to us in the person of Jesus is itself a blasphemy. So blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and the, the consequence of being unforgivable isn't about taking the Lord's name in vain or just being irreverent toward God. The, the, the unforgivable sin that we're talking about here in Mark is the, the hard-hearted and stubborn refusal to believe in the spirit of God at work in Jesus's ministry, to cast out demons, to forgive those who, are, who, are, who have sinned, and to cleanse those who are unclean, and to make whole those who are broken. It's to, to refuse to give credit to God where God deserves all the credit. And so the scribes, they've totally perverted this truth in attributing to Jesus that, that, that it was Satan who's at work in him rather than the Spirit of God at work in Jesus' ministry. That's what's so unforgivable, this willful rejection of God. 
Just as Jesus' own mother and brothers failed to take Jesus at his word and instead think he's crazy, so, so the scribes fail to trust Jesus and take him at his word when they say that he's actually demon-possessed, that his power comes from Satan rather than from God, that, that, that Jesus operates on Satan's agenda rather than on the Father's agenda who sent him forth to be the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so then this brings us to that final layer of our sandwich in Mark chapter 3, verse 31 to 35. Let me read those verses for us one more time. And his mother and brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called to him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my, my mother and brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my mother and brother. He is my brother and sister and mother. Now, as I mentioned before, for most of us, when we think about making a sandwich, we think the most important part is that middle part, right? Bread, middle meat bread, right? We think that middle part is the, the, the most important part. But again, I encourage you to think of this as an open-faced steak sandwich, right? We got the bread, we got the nice steak, but now the best part, the gravy, right? The gravy on top, the most delicious part, right? Or A1 steak sauce, take your pick. Don't, let's not take this analogy too far or the illustration too far. But here's the thing. In these verses, we meet another group, We've met Jesus' earthly family. We've met the scribes. And now we're going to meet a third group. And it's in this third group that we, we get the best news of all, right? Because here in these verses, Jesus' family finally arrives. They finally arrive after they set out from their home with the plan to subdue Jesus and, and to take him away under their control. But when they get to Jesus' house, they don't actually go in. They don't push through the crowd and say, hey, I'm, I'm Jesus' mom, let me through. They stay outside and they send someone in with the message, right? And, and, and so when, when Jesus hears their message that his mother and brothers are waiting outside, he replies in a way that makes some of us feel a little bit uncomfortable at first. He looks around the room and says, here are my mother and brothers. Now, let me pause here for a moment because I think this is where some families feel a little bit uncomfortable. Because we have Jesus' real earthly family outside and, and this crowd and his, and by the way, his 12 closest disciples, which, whom he just called a few verses earlier in chapter 3, are there gathered around Jesus in the house. And he says, well, wait a minute, here, here's my, bro, my mother and brother and sister, Right? Well, what Jesus essentially does when his earthly family gets there, it's like they've just called him, he looks at his phone, and he hits the send a voicemail button, right? He's like, boop, we'll talk to him later. And he sends them to voicemail. And we're left kind of wondering, hey, that kind of bothers me. Shouldn't he care about his earthly family? Shouldn't he give some priority to his earthly family? What about his mother and brother outside? Aren't they his real family? Come on, like this is the Bible. We should, be, we should value family, right? What gives Jesus the right to ignore them? That, that seems disobedient. That, that actually sounds like that might be breaking the, the fifth commandment to honor your father and your mother. How, how can Jesus be doing that? Well, 
let, let me just encourage you to, to slow down. If, if that's you, just take a breath and slow down with me because these things are all true. Jesus does value family. He honors and upholds the fifth commandment as he does all of the law. Jesus is not looking to undo or break any of this, but Jesus' point is saying that, that it's not our earthly family that's our highest priority. Our highest priority is our heavenly family, the family of God. That's our greatest priority. In that moment, when he looks around the room, he says, this is my family. In a, in a way, in a sense, to, to make it clear that my highest priority is to the family of God. Right? And who's in the family of God? Mark says, or Jesus says in Mark 3, only those who do the will of God. So we're kind of left with that question as we look at this passage and say, well, what is the will of God? This is the, the very thing that we wish God would write across the heavens like a sky writing plane and make clear to us, right? When, when, we, when, when we graduate from, from high school and college, we wish God made it clear, this is the will of God. Do this, Dan. Go here. Do that. This is what it means to be in the will of God. We wish it was the clearest possible message that we would ever receive, and, and yet we struggle with that, right? We struggle to, to answer that question, what is the will of God? But it can't be more clear than what Jesus already preached to us in Mark 1.15, where Jesus says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's, that's the will of God right there. To recognize that the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. It, it, it's to, to repent from our lives apart from God and, and, and to believe in the good news that, that the kingdom of God has arrived here in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus' family, they thought he was crazy for all of his miracle working and his preaching and, and, and teaching, and so they rejected it. The scribes claimed Jesus was possessed by Satan, so they clearly rejected it as well. But, but this third group, the group that's gathered around Jesus in the house, the disciples and the crowd and, and all those who are gathered in a circle around Jesus in the house, they got it. They understood who Jesus was. That's why they were in the house, right? Jesus' earthly family is standing outside the house. Those who got it, they're standing in the house, sitting around Jesus in a circle, listening to him teach and preach and watching him do the miracles that he was doing. They understood who Jesus was. See, Jesus has been revealing himself to us throughout chapters one and two of Mark all along. He's been revealing himself to these crowds all along in his earthly ministry, and they got it. They believe it. Yeah, I mean, I get it. Part of this crowd is, is the, are those people that are showing up because of the things that they heard Jesus can do. But that's not all that this crowd is made up of. They're people who, who are curious enough. They're, they're leaning in. They're paying attention. They're not, they're not stubbornly or hard-heartedly writing Jesus off as being an, a lunatic or, or, or being demon-possessed. These were people who believed Jesus to be who he claimed to be. 
that, that he was the promised Messiah, that he was God's anointed king. He, he was the beloved son of God sent to do the work of his father. The, the work that tells us that he came to, to overcome the power and temptation of Satan for us because we couldn't. To, to tear down the walls of Satan's kingdom and, and to lead us into God's kingdom. To, to cleanse those who are unclean because we can't clean ourselves. To heal our broken hearts and souls because the best thing we could do is maybe slap a band-aid on it and hope to forget it. Jesus came to call us to a new life in following a better king. To, to, to reveal himself as the one true living God and, and the one true living king with authority and power over sin and darkness. Jesus came to bind up the strong man, Satan, and plunder his house by setting captives free. Church, Jesus is building up his kingdom and he's filling it with those who don't think he's a crazy man and who don't think that he's demon possessed. He's filling it with those who believe him, who take him at his word and believe that maybe Jesus is who he says he is. Church, as, as we kind of round things out and wrap up, I want you to know something. You were created for more than this life. You were created for more than just what you accomplish in this life. You were created for more than what people think of you in this life. See, the, the scribes in Jesus' family, they were created for more than this life. The crowd, the 12 disciples, were created for more than this life. All of mankind was created to know God, to know the one who created them, to know his love and his goodness, to understand and know his righteousness and justice, and, and to walk with him in the peace of his paradise, just like Adam and Eve did before the fall of sin. And so God invites us to know him in the person of his son, Jesus. I would say Jesus is not a lunatic. He's not a demon-possessed person. He is God's son, his chosen king, his anointed king, who came to conquer sin by being the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's who Jesus is. But the question is not who is Jesus, but who do you believe Jesus to be? Will you take him at his word? Do you, will you, do you trust him? Not just like, yeah, I'll tell the pastor I trust him or give the Sunday school answer. But if, as you look inside your heart, do you truly trust that Jesus is who he said he is and that he accomplished what he set about to accomplish and that he's accomplishing what he's going to accomplish until he returns again? Do you trust him? Well, then do the will of God. Repent and believe in his word. Why? His kingdom is here. It's now, and it's in the person of Jesus. See, our passage this morning invites us to think on who we believe Jesus is. So let me ask you one more time, who do you believe him to be? The things Jesus did and the claims he make 
don't leave room for us to think that he was a great moral teacher that lived at some point in history and that he was a kind man and did some great things or he was a prophet. Those the claims he made about himself require that we think more of him than that. And so like C.S. Lewis said, he hasn't left us with that option. He's either out of his mind, demon-possessed, or he is who he claims to be. But again, doesn't matter who I tell you who he is, you have to decide this for yourself. So would you do that for me? Would you take the time to really ask yourself? Don't be afraid. I know we get busy or we make ourselves busy so we don't have to think on these things that truly matter. But would you do, your, do me a favor and take that time to really ask yourself, what do I believe about Jesus? Have I read the claims that he makes about himself in the Bible? Do I believe he actually has authority to forgive sin? Do I believe that he will usher me into his kingdom? I am a child of God, a part of the family, a member of his kingdom, merely because I am willing to take Jesus at his word, unafraid of what others may think of me. Will you take the time to ask yourself those questions and really consider, what is it you believe about Jesus? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that reminds us that you are the living God who came to live among us to make yourself known. Lord, I confess that, that, that sometimes it's easy to be afraid of thinking on those claims that Jesus made and asking myself, do I believe him? Do I take Jesus at his word? Do I trust that he is who he says he is? Lord, I pray you'd give us the boldness today, the courage today to ask ourselves, to interview our own hearts and minds, to really delve deeply into our soul and, and, and to, to say, what do we believe about Jesus? And if we believe that he is who he says he is, Father, give us courage to follow in faith, to follow him, to do what he taught us to do, to be the people he taught us to be. Lord, we trust you to, to, to work in us through your Holy Spirit, in whose name I pray, amen.